from an interfaith perspective, any time that Latter-day Saints and evangelicals start discussing things, the conversation tends to go towards grace and wondering, how are we saved? What role do works and grace play in that salvation? So that's the eventual destination today, to spend time with King Benjamin understanding salvation and how it works, particularly understanding grace and works in that equation. These are the three great things that resulted from King Benjamin's address. Humility on the part of these hearers, righteous desires welling up within them, and faith in Jesus Christ that those desires could be realized through his grace. In fact, now that I think of it, how could my evangelical friend not love this already? Throughout the history of revivalism, it tends to be a focus on our own sinfulness, a desire to change, and trust that that change will only come through Jesus Christ. This is the order. Once we have seen ourselves as less than the dust of the earth, there's our humility, recognizing what we want to become instead, there's our righteous desires, we throw ourselves at the feet of Jesus for his enabling grace. That's our faith in him, to be able to bridge the gap between who we are and who we want to become. So that's my biggest question. As we go back to chapter 2 and chapter 3, how does King Benjamin establish humility in his hearers? How does he shift their desire towards true righteousness? And what does he teach them of Jesus to center their faith in him? Let's find out. First and foremost is humility that sense of our own fallenness that prepares us to recognize our need for the atonement. This is where evangelicalism and my evangelical conversation partner that day at the Mexican restaurant, uh, they're so good at recognizing the fallenness of humanity, our own worthlessness or nothingness in comparison to God. This is one of the lasting legacies of Calvinism, that major branch of Protestantism that has colored most of American Protestantism ever since. This is the belief in the depravity of man, the fallen nature, the born in sin. Now that can be taken to the extreme as we've probably seen, but the sense of one's dependence on God is an essential part of conversion. This is Jonathan Edwards, that famous sermon in the 18th century, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Perhaps you read that in high school in some religion anthology. Or if you haven't, if you've ever seen the movie Pollyanna, where that minister was pounding the pulpit and shaking the chandelier with his shouts that death comes unexpectedly. That's Calvinism to a, to a T. In fact, a lot of the lines from that Disney sermon were lifted straight out of Edward's Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. There is value in recognizing our abject need for the grace of God, that we're unable to save ourselves. King Benjamin really moves us to that point starting in about verse 20. He says this, this is chapter 2. I say unto you, my brethren, that if you should render all your thanks and praise, which your whole soul has power to possess, to that God who has created you and has kept and preserved you and has caused that you should rejoice and has granted that you should live in peace one with another, he's going to interrupt himself and continue this in 21, but already we start to see this this distinction between things that we might be able to do for God compared to all of the things that he's already done for us. You start to see in some ways a list develop. The list continues in 21. I say unto you, if you should serve him who has created you from the beginning and is preserving you from day to day by lending you breath that you may live and move and do according to your own will and even supporting you from one moment to another, I say, if you should serve him with all your whole souls, yet ye would be unprofitable servants. That's a painful recognition. No matter how much we do, if we should render all our thanks and praise. In fact, the word all and whole comes up in 20 and again in 21. If you should render all your thanks and praise, which your whole soul has power to possess in 20. And in 21, if you should serve him with all your whole souls, no matter how much you do, yet ye would be unprofitable servants. We're still in the hole. If this was an accounting principle and there was some kind of a ledger, 
with God's side, everything that he's done for us, and then our side, the things he asks us to do in return, these two verses show us the length of the list on God's side and the shortness of the list on ours. On God's side, we would see things like creates, keeps, preserves, provides joy, grants peace, ensures agency. He supports us in our life that we can live and move. He supports us from one moment to another. In other words, there's not even a split second between moments when we're really on our own. As if to dramatize that, notice the verb he uses as far as preserving our lives from day to day. By lending you breath. Lending. Not even giving. We don't even own our own air. It's on loan. Can you imagine having to apply for that loan every time we needed it? God, please, can I have some air? (sighs) Ah, thank you. And then once we exhale, we have to apply for another loan. Honestly, you don't think that's true? I dare you. Prove it otherwise. Hold on to the air that you breathe. Make it your own. Hold your breath as long as you possibly can. And what will eventually happen? You'll pass out. And what's the first thing you'll do once you're unconscious? Exhale. As if God is saying, thank you, takes it, and goes on his way. Both the psalmist and Isaiah almost make fun of our misplaced sense of pride and independence from God by using the same kind of metaphor about breath on loan. This is how the psalmist said it in Psalm 104. That thou givest them, they gather. In other words, they only take what you're giving them to begin with. Thou openest thine hand, they are filled with good. Thou hidest thy face, they are troubled. Thou takest away their breath, they die and return to their dust. In other words, the moment you withhold the loan, we cannot survive on our own. Thou sendest forth thy spirit, they are created, and thou renewest the face of the earth. It is all dependent on God. And then the way Isaiah said it in chapter 2, Cease ye from man, he says, whose breath is in his nostrils. For wherein is he to be accounted of? I just love that, that mental picture. His breath is in his nostrils? You, wait, you mean these holes on his face that he can't even close on his own? This is like a balloon that you can't even tie shut. Our lungs have holes in our face that we try to hold in our air through our nostrils. That's where we keep our breath. Talk about a loan that we can't help but repay. With all this in mind, King Benjamin is trying to paint this picture that no matter how much we do, we will be unprofitable servants. Again, that ledger that I'm trying to describe. If one side is God's and the other side is ours, his side so heavily outweighs us What's on ours? Thank, praise, and serve. Yes, with all that we have, with our whole souls, but if you were to relabel those two sides instead of God's side and our side, imagine if this is just our personal ledger, that we're trying to keep track of accounts, our own account with God. And so instead of just God's side, my side, this is debits and credits. The debits is everything God has done for me every breath of air that he's loaned me, no matter how low the interest rate. And then on the credit side, all my thanks, all my praise, all my service of my whole soul. And yet at the end of the day, when I look at that account, it's as if God can stamp debt across the top. Deficit, loss. I'm in the hole. I'm in the red. Because God has done so much more than I possibly can. I will forever remain an unprofitable servant. Now this sounds like horrible news. There's a side, I think, in most of us that there's this justice. We don't want to be in in debt to anybody, even to God. So we perk up when we read verse 22. And behold, all that he requires of you. Oh, really? Wait, there's a way that I can chip away at my debt? There's something he's asking me to do? Maybe somehow I can work my way out of the hole. All he requires of you is to keep his commandments. That's it. That's why we obey. That's why we work so hard in the church. It's so that we can pay God back 
so that we're no longer unprofitable servants. So let's add one more line to the ledger under credits. A big, bold obey. That's all he requires of me. So supposedly, if I can do that, if I can live every law to perfection, then my credits offset my debits, my side has equaled God's side, and I'm no longer unprofitable. In fact, re-stamp that in the black instead of the red. Label it profit. I am a profitable servant. We could call it surplus. We could label it gain. But here's the biggest problem with that. The moment we somehow convince ourselves that we are profitable servants, then instead of our side being the side of debt, we've shifted the debt to Jesus. As if to say, I've done everything that was asked. I paid you back for creation and joy and agency and support. I've paid you back for every breath that was on loan. And in a way, we might start thinking that since we're not in debt, God now is. Since we're no longer unprofitable servants, we're profitable ones. And who's getting that profit? God. And who does he owe it to? Us. So now what does he give us? Salvation. Because he owes it to us. We've earned it. We've worked and obeyed until God owes us that. And yet what does Paul say to the Romans so clearly? And this is, I think, where all of my evangelical friends would caution every Latter-day Saint who thinks that in somehow they may be earning their way to heaven. Romans 4.4, Paul says clearly, Now to him that worketh is the reward not reckoned of grace, but of debt. You understand the danger of that, that ledger model that I was laying out? The moment we start thinking that God owes us, that salvation is some kind of a payment of debt, then it no longer is a gift of grace. In many ways, it's our attitude that determines, is salvation a gift of grace or a wage of works? It can't be both. So what does God do to keep salvation a gift instead of a wage? How does he keep the debt on the right side of the ledger? To borrow the language that Lehi used with his son Jacob, back in 2 Nephi 2, salvation is free, he says. We could say that salvation is a gift then. That not just creation and preservation goes on that side of the ledger, but even salvation goes on that side of the ledger also. And how does God maintain it as a gift that is free and yet ask of us, require of us to keep his commandments? The key to that question comes in verse 23 and 24. And this is what I was so excited to share with my evangelical pastor friend. Verse 23, King Benjamin continues. And now, in the first place, notice the order he's starting to lay out. In the first place, he hath created you and granted unto you your lives, for which ye are indebted unto him. And secondly, so there's a, a separation here. And secondly, he doth require that you should do as he commanded you. For which if ye do, he doth immediately bless you, and therefore he hath paid you, and ye are still indebted unto him, and are and will be forever and ever. Therefore, of what have ye to boast? Even that last line is Pauline. Paul talks about that often. What do we have to boast of? King Benjamin is putting us in that same position of having nothing to brag about. Remember, humility is the goal here. Dependence on the grace of God is the aim. If we focus on those two phrases in the first place, and secondly, then we see that in God's accounting, it's not just one ledger, but two. The first ledger is the one that we had in mind at the beginning. The one that has creation and preservation. And again, we can add salvation to that ledger. And what is on our side of that one? Really nothing that we can do. As we saw back in 20, we can thank him and we can praise him, but that in no way pays him back for what he's given us. So then secondly, there's this other ledger. This is the one where we see our obedience. All he requires is 
that we obey his commandments. It's on that side that I think our service belongs, the works that God is asking us to perform. And yet, what does he do with that side? The moment we engage in any of those actions of obedience or service, he immediately blesses us and he's already paid us. And so we're still in debt. Now, if we're trying to pay off debt, this is not helping us much. Imagine that you owe someone a debt. And so you go to work for them and you tell them, withhold all of my salary. Don't ever put anything in my bank account. Take all of the salary you would have given. Take all of my wages, all of my earnings, and please credit my account. I don't, I don't even want to see it. Just let it chip away at my debt until it's paid in full. And when we try to strike up that kind of a bargain with God, it doesn't quite work that way. We say, okay, I am going to serve you. I'm going to obey you in order to chip away at my debt for creation, preservation, and salvation. And he just kind of smiles knowingly and nods as if in agreement with us. And we work, we serve, we obey, and he immediately blesses us. And we say, no, 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 no. I Remember, I asked you, don't pay me anything. Don't bless me at all. Just take whatever you were going to bless me with and credit it to my account. Put it on my credits side of the ledger. And again, God smiles lovingly and says, yeah, that's not how we do things here. Because if we were able to take your obedience and service credits and transfer them over to your creation and salvation debits, then that would turn what I intended to be a gift into some kind of a wage that would end up emphasizing your labor instead of my love. And rather than focus on mercy, it would turn you into a mercenary. And that's not my intent. So let's keep these two ledgers eternally separate. The first ledger, creation and salvation, you will forever be in my debt. The second ledger, obedience, service, and blessings, I will never be in your debt. I will immediately pay you. Therefore, of what have ye to boast? This is the difference between gift and wage, between grace and works, ensuring once again that we are forever in debt to God and that God is never in debt to us. I think the concern, the well-grounded concern that our evangelical brothers and sisters see in us, in our, our toxic perfectionism, in our, our race for works righteousness, if that ever factors into our discipleship, this over-concern, am I doing enough? Am I good enough? Have I paid God back? You probably heard that from missionaries that say, I went on my mission to pay my debt to God, and yet I came home deeper in debt than when I started. That's exactly how God prefers it to be. That this isn't about us. It's about him. No wonder King Benjamin follows that, those phrases with verse 25 and 26. And now I ask, can you say aught of yourselves? I answer you, nay. Ye cannot say that ye are even as much as the dust of the earth. Yet ye were created of the dust of the earth, but behold, it belongeth to him who created you. Samuel the Lamanite kind of makes fun of that one when he says that we're less than the dust of the earth because the dust actually obeys God. I don't know if I've ever seen an obstinate dust particle that just refuses to move when the wind blows. And yet here we are, obstinate dust particles, refusing to go where the Spirit sends us. It all belongs to God. Verse 26, And I, even I, whom ye call your king, am no better than ye yourselves are. I also am of the dust. In fact, he's about to return to it. I am old and am about to yield up this mortal frame to its mother earth. No wonder King Benjamin says a few verses later in verse 34, that we all know that we are eternally indebted to our heavenly father to render to him all that we have and are. I love that. All that we have and all that we are. Our work and our glory 
should match his work and his glory, what he does and what he is. That's what God is asking of us. But again, not to pay him back. I guess all of this begs the question then, why is he asking us to do all that? I think it makes sense in many ways, in a Latter-day Saint mind anyway, of, well, I, all he asks of me is to obey, and this way I can show him that I'm worthy of the salvation that he's offering me. But we aren't. We're unprofitable servants and are, will be forever eternally indebted to him. So why does he require of us, if all that he requires of us is to obey, but he doesn't allow any of Ledger 2's credits to offset Ledger 1's debits, then why is he asking us to do all of that to begin with? I think this actually answers the question of that verse back in 2 Nephi 25 that we quote so often, but sadly, I still don't think we really understand. 2 Nephi 25, 23, it's, so, it's such a pithy phrase. It just rolls off the tongue that sadly, we remember this one at the expense of some other equally important and perhaps more significant verses. This is the verse where Nephi says that it is by grace that we are saved after all that we can do, as if it was some kind of a chronology. Once we've done everything that we can possibly do, then grace kind of nudges us over the crest of the hill. It gets us over the hump so then we can coast on to the celestial kingdom. But again, King Benjamin tells us clearly, even after all you can do, render your whole souls all that you can do, all thanks, praise, service, you name it, you're still going to be an unprofitable servant. Go ahead and obey to perfection. He's going to pay all of that back and then some so that you remain an unprofitable servant. So what is this all that we can do that supposedly initiates saving grace? Well, that's not what Nephi intended here. Read the whole verse instead of the pithy last phrase and see what he's after. 2 Nephi 25, 23, we labored diligently to write, to persuade our children and also our brethren to do this, to believe in Christ and to be reconciled to God. That's the goal. Believe in Christ so that he can reconcile you to God. In fact, believe that he can reconcile you. For we know that it is by grace that we are saved. After all we can do. Now again, oh, but you still ended with that phrase. We're still supposed to do all this stuff. Well, what's all that we can do? Ask the anti-Nephi-Lehi's. That phrase comes up several times in their abject, humble repentance from a lifetime of fighting against God and his people. They say it was all that we could do to repent. Several times. That's all we can do. Doesn't that tie in with what Nephi was saying earlier in the verse? To be reconciled to God? That's repentance. To reconcile our will to his. That's all we can do. In fact, I honestly think that Nephi is paraphrasing his brother Jacob in this verse. And that Jacob's original version is more clear than Nephi's subsequent rendition. So mentally connect these verses in your head forever after. 2 Nephi 25, 23... That's Nephi's version. And 2 Nephi 10, 24. That's Jacob's version. Again, 2 Nephi 10 precedes 2 Nephi 25. And so Jacob's sermon in 2 Nephi 10 seems to be the initial text that Nephi is basing his on. Because you'll see some parallels. 2 Nephi 10, 24. Jacob says, Wherefore, my beloved brethren, reconcile yourselves. That same word that Nephi uses. Reconcile yourselves to the will of God and not to the will of the devil and the flesh. And remember, after, so here's this, after, same word that Nephi uses, we've got reconciliation in both verses. We have some kind of an order of things in both verses. After ye are reconciled unto God, that it is only in and through the grace of God that ye are saved. I think Jacob's after is more easily understood than Nephi's. When Nephi says, it's by grace that we're saved after all we can do, it's almost like, and I know they do this often in writing, that be careful or be aware of how you end the sentence because often the way you end it is that last thing that's going to stick in people's minds. So in Nephi's version, it's, yeah, it's grace that you're saved after all we can do, as if it was chronology. 
And yet in Jacob's version, it feels more, hey, remember, even after you are reconciled unto God, after you've done all of these things that he's asked you to do to reconcile your will to God's will instead of the will of the flesh or the will of the devil, at the end of the day, even after that, all of that is said and done, it is only, this isn't causation, this isn't chronology, at the end of the day, after all is said and done, even after you've reconciled your will to God, it is only in and through the grace of God that ye are saved. That's the only thing that does it, the grace of God. So what's the point of all of our work? What's the purpose of all we can do? It's to reconcile our wills. It's almost like Danyasan and Mr. Miyagi, all the wax on and wax off. None of that was to pay back Miyagi for the karate lessons. Those were the karate lessons. And they were meant to make karate instinctive for Danyosan. This was a development of what Elder Maxwell called righteous reflexes. That if we can reconcile our will, everything that God asks us to do, every ounce of effort, every principle he asks us to obey, every act of service is meant to develop righteous reflexes, is to retrain the natural man or the natural woman, which King Benjamin will speak about momentarily. It's to get us to stop putting our dukes up the moment our will seems to clash with God's. It almost seems like feeding birds. The moment you extend your hand to offer them something, they bolt. And yet if you can do it slowly enough and gently enough and reassuringly enough, perhaps it can retrain them to recognize the kindness behind the offer and the gentleness in the hand that is being extended them. I have to say this to my own children often. I'm on your side. I'm not wanting to fight you on this. I really am on your team. I'm just trying to help retrain your will so that it no longer follows the will of the flesh or the will of the devil, but is fully reconciled to the will of God. Our works do not save us. They make us able to accept the salvation that God freely offers us. And after all that reconciling work is done, once we've been refashioned after his image, once we've obtained what Paul calls the mind of Christ, once our reflexes are fully righteous, at the end of the day, it is only in and through the grace of God that we are saved. Works are meant for reconciliation. Salvation will remain a gift of grace. No wonder God wants to keep Ledger 2 separate from Ledger 1 so that he can pay us constantly for all of that work of reconciliation while maintaining the Ledger of salvation in the red so that it's a gift of love from him to us. I hope I'm making sense with this. I'm not saying any of this to lessen our obedience or our desire to serve with all our heart, might, mind, and strength. It's simply the reason that we're doing it that needs to be purified and sanctified. I try to serve my wife all the time, but it's not meant to balance some kind of ledger. I'm not paying her back for marrying me. I'm not trying to pay her off for sticking around with me. It's simply what a loving relationship entails. And having accepted the gift of her love at marriage, I hope she'll accept the gifts of my gratitude and my service ever since. This is not a, an equaling of, of debts here. And it's not that way for us and God either. Please continue to obey. Please continue to serve. And please rejoice in the blessings that he doth immediately give us for having done so. But don't ever feel that you're paying God back for something that we could have never earned to begin with. Rejoice in your status as an unprofitable servant. It's exactly the kind of servant the Lord always prefers to hire. If that sense of absolute dependence upon the mercy and merits and grace of the Holy Messiah helps us feel our own nothingness in a positive rather than a self-deprecating way, 
then perhaps we're ready to shift from humility, the first requirement, to this desire for righteousness that is the second. It's wanting to accept the gift that God has given us. It's wanting to act on the grace that he's provided. And so much of this revolves around what King Benjamin has taught us about service that is so well known in Mosiah chapter 2. In verse 17, this famous phrase that many of us memorized in our youth, Behold, I tell you these things that you may learn wisdom, that you may learn that when ye are in the service of your fellow beings, ye are only in the service of your God. Now what he says, this is a beautiful connection of the two great commandments. The vertical first, to love God with all our heart, might, mind, and strength, and the horizontal second, to love our neighbor as ourselves. There seems to be a connection between the vertical and the horizontal components here. You see it in verse 18 and 19. Behold, you have called me your king. And if I whom you call your king, there seems to be a suggestion of verticality here, that I'm above you, at least in your, in your opinion. If I whom ye call your king do labor to serve you, then ought not ye to labor to serve one another? That is, if a king has served you, there's a vertical, then serve one another. There's a horizontal. And then in 19, And also, if I, whom ye call your king, who has spent his days in your service, and yet has been in the service of God, do merit any thanks from you, oh, how you ought to thank your heavenly king. That is, if you feel grateful for the service of others, it's now coming back to you horizontally, then be even more grateful for the blessings of God, which exist in the vertical dimension. Perhaps one way to depict this horizontal and vertical component of service is to put ourselves at one corner with others along the horizontal axis and God along the vertical. It's service and sacrifice that passes between us and one another. And it's humility and gratitude that passes between us and God. In other words, it's actions on the horizontal and attitudes on the vertical plane. Combine the two together and you have growth in discipleship. As our actions towards others improve and our attitudes toward God improve. In many ways, there's no strict separation between the horizontal and the vertical. When we're serving one, we're serving the other. When we're loving one, we're loving the other. Discipleship is the perfect melding of both. And those are the kinds of righteous desires that King Benjamin is trying to inculcate into his people. Later, he'll describe the more negative side of that. By the end of this chapter, chapter 2, verse 36, notice some of the negative phrases. I say unto you, my brethren, that after ye have known and have been taught all these things, if ye should transgress and go contrary to that which has been spoken, that you do withdraw yourselves from the Spirit of the Lord, that he may have no place in you to guide you in wisdom's paths, that you may be blessed, prospered, and preserved. Again, language that we saw earlier in the chapter, all that God is trying to do for us. And yet, if we will withdraw ourselves from him, transgress, go contrary, then in verse 37, this is the man that cometh out in open rebellion against God. He listeth to obey the evil spirit and becometh an enemy to all righteousness. Therefore the Lord hath no place in him, for he dwelleth not in unholy temples. This is the flip side of those two ledgers that we spoke of earlier. By listing to obey the evil spirit, by withdrawing from God and going contrary to what he's spoken, this is second ledger. We've chosen a different master. And as we see elsewhere in scripture, Each servant receives wages of him whom he listeth to obey. The wages of righteousness are the blessings that immediately come the moment we do as God asks. Staying unprofitable servants as always, but reconciling our wills so that we're willing to accept the salvation that God is giving us freely and generously from ledger number one. Whereas if in ledger number two, There is no wage of unrighteousness. Satan has no good payment to offer his servants. So not only are we not being paid 
the wages of unrighteousness. But all of that work not only does nothing to reconcile our will to the Father, but it actually reconciles the will of the flesh to the will of the devil. Those are the three wills that Jacob was talking about back in 2 Nephi chapter 10. And so here we are, the will of the flesh being caught between two possible masters, the will of the devil or the will of God. And all of our works or lack of works, all of our obedience or lack of obedience, our leaning into the goodness of God or our withdrawing ourselves from the spirit of the Lord is deciding which way our will will lean. And as a result, whether we will be willing to accept the gift of salvation that God is offering or not. All along, we are learning the type of life that God lives, not earning some kind of reward for it. If our will is only reconciled to the will of the devil, then in verse 38, that man that repenteth not and remaineth and dieth an enemy to God, the demands of divine justice to awaken his immortal soul to a lively sense of his own guilt. Jacob talked about this as well back in 2 Nephi chapter 9, that we will recognize God's justice and agree with it even when that justice condemns us. We will be constrained to admit, my transgressions are mine. They could have been yours. I could have handed them over. You asked me for them. But my transgressions are mine. And your judgments are just. This lively sense of our own guilt. We shrink from the presence of the Lord. Again, he's offering us. This is the, the kind hand extending and the bird flying away out of fear. We shrink from the presence of the Lord. We fill our breasts with guilt and pain and anguish, which is like an unquenchable fire whose flame ascendeth up forever and ever. And mercy, verse 39 hath no claim on that man. Therefore, his final doom is to endure a never-ending torment. Is that a torment imposed upon the person by God? It doesn't seem like it. This is not even justice punishing. This is justice awakening us to a lively sense of our own guilt. It's not God sending us away. It's us shrinking from his presence. This is not God condemning us to a lake of unquenchable fire. This is us filling our breasts with guilt and pain and anguish, which is like an unquenchable fire. Joseph Smith described this in fascinating language. He taught, A sinner has his own mind, and his own mind damns him. He is damned by mortification and is his own condemner and tormentor. I have no fear of hellfire, that doesn't exist. But the torment and disappointment of the mind of man is as exquisite as a lake burning with fire and brimstone. This is what we are bringing upon ourselves. Our own regret, our own remorse, that guilt and pain and anguish, which justice has awakened us to. That's what damns us, our own mind having convinced ourselves somehow that our will is irreconcilable to the will of God. And therefore, it is not by grace that we can be saved because nothing could possibly save us. We've made ourselves unsavable, and that's our choice, not God's condemnation. Compare that to the mental state of the righteous, those whose wills have been reconciled to the will of God, those whose works have retrained their reflexes to be righteous. Verse 41, I would desire that you should consider on the blessed and happy state of those that keep the commandments of God. Behold, they are blessed in all things. He doth immediately bless them, both temporal and spiritual. And if they hold out faithful to the end, they are received into heaven because they finally find themselves able and willing to receive the heaven that is offered them, that thereby they may dwell with God in a state of never-ending happiness. Oh, remember, remember that these things are true, for the Lord God hath spoken it. Which state will be yours and mine? This happy and blessed state of those that have retrained their will 
through all that God asks of us? Or the lively sense of our own guilt that causes us to shrink, untrained to accept God's grace or to be willing to be changed by it? All of this, King Benjamin clarifies, will come from our faith in Jesus Christ. Remember what he said, or what the people said at the beginning of chapter 4, verse 2, halfway down. For we believe in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Notice the things they know about him with King Benjamin's help. That he is the Son of God. That divinity. That that he created heaven and earth. That power and authority. Who shall come down among the children of men. That glorious condescension. Divinity and humanity. Seeing all of this together in him exercising their faith in him, that because he knows us, having come down among us, he wants to save us. And being the son of God, he has the power to save us, both the will and the means to bring us home. That's faith in Jesus Christ that they have developed. That probably comes most specifically through the words of the angel to King Benjamin. Back in chapter 3, verse 1, I would call your attention, for I have somewhat more to speak unto you. So far, I've talked about humility and righteous desire. Where you happen to be and where you'd like to be. What connects those two points is Jesus Christ. So let me tell you the good news. Chapter 2 was full of bad news in some ways. Hopeful but bad in terms of us recognizing our own utter dependence upon God's grace. So what then is the good news? That God's grace is sufficient for us all. Verse 2, The things which I shall tell you are made known unto me by an angel from God. He said unto me, Awake! Angels tend to do that. And I awoke, and behold, he stood before me. And he said unto me, Awake! Now, odd that he'd say that twice. It's like, you just told me to wake up. And I did. This was, there was no snooze bar. But there seems to be almost this awake the first time. And now that you're awake, really awake. I don't know if the first was physical and the second was spiritual. Or the first was an initial level. And now let's go even deeper. Focus on this. It's not just King Benjamin telling his audience, don't trifle with my words. It's the angel telling King Benjamin in advance, you don't trifle with these either. Awake and hear the words which I shall tell thee. For behold, I am come to declare unto you the glad tidings of great joy. Now there's a certain time of year where we all read about angels declaring glad tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. That seems to be the essential mission of angels, to come and declare glad tidings, the glad tidings of the greatest joy. And that always has to do with Jesus. Jesus is the good news. Here's the glad tidings. Verse 5, For behold, the time cometh, and is not far distant, that with power the Lord omnipotent who reigneth, who was and is from all eternity to all eternity, this is that Son of God that they recognized, shall come down from heaven among the children of men and shall dwell in a tabernacle of clay and shall go forth amongst men, working mighty miracles, such as healing the sick, raising the dead, causing the lame to walk, the blind to receive their sight, and the deaf to hear, and curing all manner of diseases. That's the part that he described in chapter 4, verse 2, that he shall come down among the children of men glorification and condescension, all melding together in the same supernal individual. Verse 7, Lo, he shall suffer temptations and pain of body, hunger, thirst, and fatigue. His humanity would allow him to do that. Even more than man can suffer, his divinity would allow him to do that. Except it be unto death, a mere mortal would have succumbed long before Jesus ever said, It is finished. For behold, blood cometh from every pore, so great shall be his anguish for the wickedness and the abominations of his people. Do you remember what King Benjamin said at the beginning of his address? I am like unto you. I have the feelings of infirmities in body and mind. I'm no different than you are. 
in a much more divine way, Jesus, because of his mortal condescension, is able to say likewise, I am like unto you. I understand weakness of body and of spirit. I sometimes wonder back in verse 5 and 6, all of this mighty miracles that he works among them, does he heal the sick in part because he knows what sickness feels like? Does he raise the dead because he would have himself to raise first? Does he cause the lame to walk because he understands lameness? The blind to receive their sight because he knows the fear of the dark? The deaf to hear because he cried out to a silent heaven, curing all manner of diseases because he took upon us our sicknesses according to the flesh that he might know how to succor his people. Does he cast out our devils because he cast out the devil first? In other words, being the son of God, that gave him the power to perform all those miracles. But being the son of Mary, did that give him the will to want to in the first place? At Christmas, we sing that beautiful song, O Holy Night. And in it we say, He knows our needs. To our weakness, He's no stranger. So this less than the dust of the earth that we grapple with ourselves, here's a man who, was, who dwelt in a tabernacle of clay, he took upon himself the dust of the earth himself so he would know what it feels like. No wonder Jesus bridges the gap between our fallenness and our righteous desires. No wonder the atonement is what bridges that chasm because the atoner had to feel both sides of it himself. Verse 8, He shall be called Jesus Christ, the Son of God, that divine side, the father of heaven and earth, the creator of all things from the beginning, and his mother shall be called Mary, that mortal side. He cometh unto his own, his own, his own kinds of people, having taken upon himself their infirmities, that salvation might come unto the children of men, even through faith on his name. And even after all this, they shall consider him a man and say that he hath a devil. I sometimes wonder if we feel the same thing about ourselves. Even after we've had faith in his name, even, even after all of that change, do we still sometimes consider ourselves as mere men and women, devilish and carnal and sensual? And yet knowing that through the grace of God, we are retraining ourselves, reconciling our will to him through every exercise of obedience and service. What a blessing that God has given us that second ledger with a list of exercises to make our will reconcilable to the will of him who wills our salvation and offers it to us as a gift of grace. In Christ's case, they will scourge him and crucify him. But in verse 10, he shall rise the third day from the dead. He standeth to judge the world. As we saw earlier, he standeth so that the recognition of justice will allow us to judge ourselves. And behold, all these things are done that a righteous judgment might come upon the children of men. A righteous judgment. Unlike the one of this lively sense of our own guilt, we see instead justice and mercy personified in front of us and it awakens a lively sense of his goodness, more than enough for our lack. For behold, chapter 3, verse 11, also his blood atoneth for the sins of those who have fallen by the transgression of Adam, who have died not knowing the will of God concerning them, who have ignorantly sinned. That free gift is meant for them also. But woe, woe unto him who knoweth that he rebelleth against God that says, for whatever reason, I refuse to accept the gift that thou hast given me. Perhaps worst of all, I refuse to accept it until I can earn it. I refuse to be in debt to you until I can make you in debt to me. 
that attitude never leads to the kind of humility that relies solely upon the mercy and merits of the Holy Messiah. That is works that can't even be called works righteousness because it doesn't tend to refashion us after the image of righteousness himself. As if we were trying to be like Jesus without allowing Jesus to enter the picture at all. As Benjamin reiterates in verse 12, for salvation cometh to none such. Notice it's not that he's not giving it to any, it's that it doesn't come. He offers, we don't receive. We won't allow it to come to us, except it be through repentance and faith on the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Lord God hath sent his holy prophets among all the children of men, King Benjamin included, to declare these things to every kindred, nation, tongue, that thereby whosoever should believe that Christ should come, the same might receive remission of their sins and rejoice with exceedingly great joy, even as though he had already come among them. We've seen that already as faith wreaks havoc on our verb tenses. We saw that earlier. We'll see it again later in Mosiah. To believe in Jesus and rejoice as though he had already come among us. Sadly, this seems like something that is so difficult for so many of us to accept. No wonder in verse 14, Benjamin continues, describing the stiff-necked people. No wonder we need law to break down our sense of adequacy or self-sufficiency, a law that we cannot live perfectly. And so, as Paul teaches the Romans, the law was given to shut every mouth, to silence us whenever we try to justify ourselves or think, no, just give me more time and I'll be able to pay you back. I'll work off my debt. I will become a profitable servant. The law says, shut it. The law shuts our mouths from self-justification. The law lets us know that we fall short. And in falling short, we rely wholly upon Jesus Christ. And simultaneously, the law retrains our will to reconcile it to the will of God. Again, it's how we perceive our actions and our obedience. In verse 15, all that law was was signs and wonders and types and shadows pointing them forward to Jesus. Unfortunately, they hardened their hearts. They didn't understand. And what didn't they understand? That the law of Moses availeth nothing except it were through the atonement of Christ's blood. This is what Nephi is trying to explain right on the heels of it is by grace that we are saved after all we can do. If we're still confused by that verse, keep reading. And the last few verses in chapter 25, Nephi says he teaches the children the law of Moses because that's what God had taught them. But they taught the deadness of the law so they would recognize that their life was in Christ. Even that verse that we quote all the time, that we speak of Christ and we teach of Christ and we rejoice in Christ and we prophesy of Christ and write according to our prophecies. Remember the end of the verse? That our children may know to what source they must look for a remission of their sins. Why be so emphatic about Jesus? So they know the source. But why the need for such emphasis? Because it's so easy to have our attention drawn away by other things, including good things like the law, like works, like obedience. We still teach all those things. We live all those things, but we live them in full recognition of their inherent deadness to ever make up the difference in ledger number one. We recognize that our life is in Christ and all of those things that we do are meant to wean us from any kind of sense of self-sufficiency until we know that it is through him that we are saved. That only through the atonement of his blood are we saved. And that everything else independent of that availeth us nothing. Verse 16, even if little children could sin, they could not be saved. Which teaches us in a fascinating thing, that salvation does not simply require the absence of sin, It's a retrained will that makes us savable. It's not just 
justification, getting us back to ground level. Because children, we see this in Doctrine and Covenants 29. That just, Christ just says, put it on, I'll cover it. I'm not going to allow the devil to tempt them. I'm not going to count anything they do against them. Believe me, some of my children knew how to sin before age eight. Uh, it's not that they're unsinful. It's they're unaccountable for their sins. Either they were just quick learners, as I'm sure we all were, or there's a real principle here that God is just deciding, I'm not going to hold this against them. And yet, it's not just God's mercy that's not holding things against us. It's his grace that's lifting us to higher things that we would ever be on our own. Elder Hafen talked about the atonement, not just pulling weeds, but also planting flowers. And so in verse 16, even if little children could sin, there's the understanding. They can't. There are no weeds in their garden. But it's not clear soil that I'm after. It's the fruits of righteousness and repentance. It's growth. And so justification is only the first step. Sanctification is what the Lord is really after. And that requires a reconciled will. If it's just sinfulness we're talking about, verse 16 continues, they're blessed as in Adam or by nature they fall even so the blood of Christ atoneth for their sins. But we all have growth to achieve. Again, not to earn anything, but to learn something. And that growth will come with the grace of God. No wonder all of these works have very little to do with salvation and very much to do with retraining and reconciliation. Verse 17 there shall be no other name given, nor any other way nor means whereby salvation can come unto the children of men. Only in and through the name of Christ, the Lord Omnipotent. It's not going to be your name. It's not going to be your way. It's not going to be your means. It's not the law of Moses. It's not the works of righteousness. All of those prove your insufficiency and his all-sufficiency. It's only through his name that we're saved. Verse 18 then, He judgeth, and his judgment is just. The infant perisheth not that dieth in his infancy, but men drink damnation to their own souls, except they humble themselves and become as little children. That's what Mosiah chapter 2 in its entirety was after, to help us humble ourselves and become as little children. That's exactly what happened to these people that we see by the beginning of chapter 4. They saw themselves as less than the dust of the earth. Next, and believe that salvation was and is and is to come in and through the atoning blood of Christ, the Lord Omnipotent. That's the faith element, recognizing the source of the solution to the human condition. Verse 19 then, Famously, for the natural man is an enemy to God. The one whose, whose will of the flesh has not yet been reconciled to the will of the Father. And it has been from the fall of Adam and will be forever and ever until this moment. Until he yields to the enticings of the Holy Spirit. To yield. Does that really feel like hard work? No, it's to yield. It's to quit bolting or flying away the moment the Father's hand is extended with grace. It's to reconcile our will. It's to establish righteous reflexes. It's to give in. It's to put our dukes down and stop fighting God when he just wants to hold us. When I was a kid learning how to drive, merging onto the freeway was the scariest thing I ever had to do. Do you remember those days? where you're going from you're going up the on-ramp and you know that traffic is going to be whizzing past you at 70 miles an hour, even in the slow lane, and somehow you're supposed to merge in between semis, scared me to death. And yet, what is merging onto the freeway? It's just yielding. If someone else is in, there in the lane, just let them go. Just yield. I'll come in behind you. Now, half the time, don't do this. But we, 
we got a burger in one hand or a makeup brush in the other and our on our knee is the is on the steering wheel we we've learned to yield and it's not supposed to take a ton of effort it's a passive thing more than an active thing all of this active serving obeying that he immediately blesses us for is to retrain us for the passive yielding to the enticings of the holy spirit so that we can then put off the natural man the will of the flesh no longer interests me let alone the will of the devil my will has been reconciled to the will of god and i have become as a child i've become a saint through the atonement of christ the lord i've become as a child submissive meek humble patient full of love willing to submit to all the things which the Lord seeth fit to inflict upon me, even as a child to submit to his father. That is the great point that King Benjamin is trying to make for his people. Eventually, verse 20, the world will know this. The time shall come when the knowledge of a Savior shall spread throughout every nation, kindred, tongue, and people. Until then, we've got a lot of work to do to make sure that this saving message goes to everyone that we can possibly share it with. He finishes this chapter with a repetition of the way he ended chapter 2, really, about the final consequences of yielding or not yielding, of choosing which master to serve, of which wages or lack of wages to receive, and more importantly, which gift to receive, since at the end of the day, there really is only one gift that's being offered anyway. I stumbled across a, a sentence written by a Pulitzer Prize winning poet. I couldn't disagree more with her words. She said this, you do not have to be good. You do not have to walk on your knees for a hundred miles through the desert repenting. You only have to let the soft animal of your body love what it loves. I understand her desire to caution us away from the sense of asceticism or self-mortification that we sometimes think goes along with a disciple's life. But the idea of letting the soft animal of our body love what it loves, talk about succumbing to the will of the flesh, which so often is tied to the will of the adversary. Talk about yielding to the wrong things. It's not a matter of walking on our knees for a hundred miles through the desert repenting. Are those really our only options? Either work yourself to the bone, earning heaven, or just giving in to the soft animal of what we want to want? Is there a higher and holier way where we are living the life of Christ, but doing it because we love it? because we want it, because we have relearned where joy and happiness truly are found. That is the blessed and happy state of those that have put off the natural man, yielded to the enticings of the Holy Spirit, and become a saint through the atonement of Christ. That was the goal of Benjamin and the angel. And that was the result of the people who heard these magnificent words. I hope that Benjamin's message has a similar effect upon you and me. That we will find ourselves looking in the mirror and seeing ourselves as less than the dust of the earth, full of the fear of the Lord, but also the faith in the Lord, knowing that because of Jesus, the Son of God, who shall come down among the children of men, we might obtain mercy through the atoning blood of Christ and a remission of our sins, that our hearts may be purified in him. I testify of this glorious message. This is evangelicalism at its best. This is the restored gospel at its finest. This is truth. This is salvation. And it's offered by a Savior 
who knows us and loves us, both in spite of that and because of that. Amazingly and mercifully, King Benjamin's address doesn't stop here. This is almost like the end of one session of General Conference, and we're about to begin the next session. And King Benjamin is about to speak again. Next week, we will study Mosiah chapter 4, 5, and 6, the second half of this. And this week, as you study these chapters yourself, I would invite you to pay close attention to what's different about the second half than the first half. What was King Benjamin trying to achieve in those first few chapters that he did achieve? But having achieved it, where can he go now? Having gotten to this point, how do I take my discipleship further up that slope? How do I increase both the vertical and the horizontal dimensions of my righteous desire? What do I do with this newfound humility and faith in Jesus Christ? What does it make me want to do and become? I now want to give God all that I have and am. So how do I? That's next week, and I hope you'll join me for it. Thank you again for spending your time with me and with these incredible chapters. Bless you in your own study. May your time in the Book of Mormon be insightful, and may it leave your faith unshaken. I'll see you next time.